1: Visit RightRug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
2: I see this person who's on the floor and I'm feeling the sensation of the floor up against my back. I'm feeling the compressions against my chest as he's getting compressions. I feel a sharp sensation down the back of my throat as a breathing tube is being placed down his throat. And at the moment they call the time of death, I just distinctly remember this feeling of it's as if all motion in my own body has stopped and I have to will myself to breathe. Hey,
3: everyone. I'm Dr. Oz, and this is the Dr. Oz Podcast. It's one of the most fascinating conditions of the human mind. For some otherwise ordinary people, a rare glitch in the brain can unlock extraordinary abilities. Imagine being able to experience the physical sensation of the person next to you, even detecting their emotions, the good and the bad. That's exactly what my next guest can do. He's a doctor who can feel his patient's pain. Dr. Joel Salinas was born with a neurological condition called mirror touch synesthesia, something I've heard a lot about, but I've never talked to anybody with it. And he's here with us right now to reveal what he calls the secret life of the brain. And it does, I must say, for everybody, sound like a superpower of sorts. It's a a mystical connection between one person and another. But, Joel, if you don't mind, explain what it's like living every single day with this uncanny ability to really feel literally what other people are experiencing.
2: Yeah, I think the easiest way for me to explain what mirror touches would be for me to say that what I see somebody else feel physically, emotionally, my brain makes me feel too. So if I see someone gasping for air, I feel in my body like I'm gasping for air. If I see someone with a headache, I feel like I have a headache. It's uh, like this mirror touch uh, experience makes, my, makes me categorize the people I'm looking at, at the, uh, as if they were me essentially. So as an example, if I walk into the hospital, I see somebody sitting in a wheelchair, I feel as though the, the leather of the wheelchair is behind my legs. Or if they're wearing a pair of glasses, I feel the sensation of glasses on the bridge of my nose. If I see the security guard with a little kind of a plastic kind of coiled earpiece around his right ear, I actually feel it in my left ear. Mm-hmm. My brain is constantly kind of seeing people and thinking that you know, they're my reflection or I'm, I'm their reflection based off of the, the situation and all of my past experiences. So you're a neurologist. Yes. Position, so ironically, it's exactly the space
3: that you need to be an expert in to understand what, <laughs> <laughs> what the synesthesia is. Explain it to everybody. How, how does this happen? And especially this mirroring part of it.
2: Yeah, so synesthesia, if you break it up, it's, Sin, anesthesia, sin meaning together, anesthesia meaning sensation. So it's the blending of the senses, essentially. And that can happen in all sorts of different ways in people. It's uh, About four out of 100 people have this experience, this anesthesia. Four out of 100? Yeah. It's Oh, my goodness.
4: Are there varying degrees?
2: But, Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, there's, it's, you, you tend to see a lot more of it in people who have autism. Uh, and it's just how the brain cells are connected to each other, and some people just have a lot of extra wiring. But it can be connected in strange ways where sounds can give you the sensation of, of visual experiences like colors and shapes, which is one of the reasons why you see it a lot in celebrities who are musicians as well, like Billy Joel, Pharrell, Lady Gaga, Kanye West, Lord. These are all people who have synesthesia of, of, of one form or another. Now, mirror touch is really interesting because it's essentially sight to touch, Uh, So we all have a mirroring system in our brain where we see people move, get touched, or experience pain. Our brain is creating almost like a 3D virtual reality type simulation below the level of consciousness, which is believed to be kind of at the root of things like empathy and understanding other people's intentions. Uh, So that experience can actually cross into your conscious awareness when it's really extreme. So imagine you're watching a football game. And you see someone get, boom, sacked all of a sudden. That cringe feeling you get is essentially that mirroring system being so heightened that if you feel as if it was happening to you. But for 1.6% of the population or about hundred people who have mirror touch, that experience is conscious all the time. Because his mirroring system is hyper hyperactive because of this connectivity, doesn't
4: it make it impossible to watch a football game? Because <laughs>
1: someone's getting hurt yeah. all of the time.
2: Yeah, it's it's you know it's it's interesting in that I consider myself kind of uh, one of the lucky people with mirror touch in that I've been able to use mirror touch this uh, as if it were an ability to help other people. Most people who have mirror touch are actually shut-ins. There's this one woman uh, who has mirror touch, and she has kind of locked herself in her home, doesn't really communicate with other people. She doesn't even own a dining room table because she can't stand the sight of seeing other people eat. And other people with mirror touch, why they n- might not be shut-ins, they require long periods of isolation just to offset these overwhelming sensations. And for me, I think one of the things that's really motivated me as a doctor is that I get to help other people feel better. And in helping them physically feel better, I also get to feel better too. So it's like being totally selfish and selfish at the same time.
3: Well, you know, have a beautiful book called Mirror Touch, uh, again by Joel Salinas, who's our guest today, A Memoir of Synesthesia and the Secret Life of the Brain. And in here, you you talk about some of the challenges of practicing medicine. Mm And I I can see why it'd be great if you're a doctor who can feel your patient's pain. We always aspire to be able to do that. Certainly when we're teaching doctors, we wish more could do that. But it's not so good if you're watching someone vomiting Right or dizzy, yeah, or having uh, intractable pain. Do, do you feel exactly what they're going through?
2: Yeah. So at the beginning of my of my medical training, like in medical school, that was where I had I had a lot of challenges in that area. Just seeing other people suffering and then having to manage kind of the feelings in myself as they were kind of being recreated. And this is before I was even really really aware of kind of what what synesthesia was. Just I just thought that I was just like hypersensitive. Um, but seeing seeing someone die for the first time, for example, that was just so intense. As a medical student, I remember I'm sitting kind of in the workroom with one of the supervising doctors, and a, an alarm goes off for a, a cardiac arrest. We run out of the room. It just so happens that it, someone's collapsed in the waiting room nearby. And as I walk into the room, I see this, this person who's on the floor, uh, and I'm feeling the sensation of the floor up against my back, I'm feeling the sensation of compressions against my chest as he's getting compressions. I feel a sharp sensation of an object going down the back of my throat as as the breathing tube is being placed down his throat. And at the moment where they call the, the time of death, I just distinctly remember this feeling of it's as if all kind of motion in my own body has kind of stopped and I have to will myself to breathe. And at that point I had to head out of there, I went to the bathroom, just threw up. Um, And it it took me a while to compose myself and stare at my my, my reflection in the mirror and just remind myself that this is my body, this is where I am, that I'm not dead. Um, But for me, it was really about not avoiding the situations but exposing myself to as many intense situations as possible because I knew that the the best way that I could help patients is to be both uh, mentally and physically and emotionally present for them and that meant... Getting used to, as, as best as possible to to all these experiences, um, and now now that I'm much further uh, along, you now I've finished all of my clinical training. I'm a supervising neurologist now. Um, it can still be intensive sometimes, but I've kind of figured out kind of how to how to manage it.
3: I'm just, it's so curious, and I bet a lot of the folks who are listening to us are as well as whether they have an element of this. Mm-hmm. You see, four percent of us. Uh, I have uh, mirror touch synesthesia.
2: Uh, it, it, the four percent is just the cross wiring of the senses, and two percent is specifically is this mirror touch. All right. So again, if it's four, one in twenty-five yeah. people have yeah, some yeah. element
3: of yeah, this. Yeah. But I would think that it's it's not binary, right? It's yeah. not if you have it, you don't have it. It's probably a cascade. I'll give you an example. I, I know that there's literature around people who see colors during orgasms,
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: which I don't know if that's one in twenty-five too. Maybe hopefully it's more. <laughs> but, but, but you know, I, you can imagine different physical actions. A uh, runner's high when you, have, mm. you know we you have endorphin release. So yeah. maybe it frees you a little bit to be able to actually sense and see in your, your yeah. colors instead of the pain in your feet or whatever, however it manifests yeah. itself. So do most people listening right now probably have some element of this? It just might be confined to a very small spot. And maybe the maybe it's the opposite, which is only a few percent of us have none of
2: it. You're absolutely right. It's I think of it as like a spectrum. So this kind of hardwiring kind of and programming of this mirroring experience isn't everybody. It just so happens that some people are so extreme that they can kind of be tested in a laboratory as having this mirror touch kind of label. But so many of us fall along that spectrum and in lots of different places. And some of us in particular are very close to that mirror touch experience. Like you people talking about, they walk into a room and they take on the negativity of the room. Right, right. Uh, those are people who are highly, highly empathetic, but may have uh, a much more active mirroring system in their brain compared to other people. It, it's a component of biology and also a willingness to take on these experiences of the people that you're seeing that makes it so so vivid and what I think was just so fascinating about it is that just like any other brain system you can you can train it kind of like a muscle the more the more you pay attention to it the more the more those brain cells wire to each other and become much more readily available kind of like when we, you when you learn a new language, it's really tough and eventually it becomes second nature
3: so what's it really like living with mirror touch synesthesia walking through the halls of a hospital as a doctor? feeling, literally feeling the pain of his patients. Dr. Salinas describes that next.
5: any disease.
1: Right rug flooring.
4: As a physician, yeah. especially while you were training yeah. and you were doing a, probably a surgical rotation, <laughs> you, yeah. don't, you don't want to feel that bandsaw to the yeah, chest every yeah. time you go in the OR. Can you make it less? Can you turn it down?
2: Yeah, I, I figured out ways to, to to kind of turn down the volume mm-hmm. a, a little bit. So a specific an example: I was in the trauma rotation as a medical student, and I remember walking to a room and immediately feeling as though I was. Like I couldn't feel anything under my, uh, just below my bicep on my left arm, and then I saw that the patient in front of me actually had, had an amputee— like his arm was cut off from the bicep down. Oh my goodness! Um, and I—you I, felt it before you saw him. Yeah, it's 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 just how amazing the brain works. Is the the information was being processed before I was consciously aware of it. Got it. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's just very humbling to know that the brain is doing so much processing before you are even aware that it's doing the processing.
4: Does it? Do you not have it if you can't see what's going on? So if someone's Mm. saying, if you're hearing that someone's in pain, do you feel it as well, or do you have to see them?
2: That's a brilliant observation you're making, in that it's really about um, the senses. If the brain kind of captures this information through any of the senses, it'll begin to recreate it. I, I kind of... I lead in talking about kind of the vision touch aspect of it because vision is we're, we're such vision vision oriented animals right. yeah. as humans, eighty like percent so, of our yeah. senses probably our vision. Exactly, exactly, but it's it's everything. It all kind of comes together. So just hearing somebody else experience something, I begin to to have that recreation. It's much more vivid uh, when it's visual and much more mirrored. So. Seeing you here, I feel as though I have my hair parted along the <laughs> right side of my head and I feel like my hands are, are crossed and I feel the sensation of a necklace on my on my neck. So it's like it's literally like I'm looking at myself in the mirror. So yeah, if, if, if I if I'm start to stroke Lisa's arm here, which you can see. Yeah. What do you feel? I feel as though there's a set of phantom fingers gently stroking my, my left forearm. Like I'm like, like a mirror. Oh my goodness. <laughs>
4: wow. I, I think that if you could figure this out, it would be incredible for AI. Video games would be so much more interesting, mm. right?
2: Well, this, there's there's some amazing work being done in this So um, that relates to empathy and compassion. So uh, well, there's just one experiment where they take people and put them into a virtual reality world. Um, before they go into this virtual world, they have them see images of people and relate kind of with how they feel about those people. And then they put them into kind of a VR kind of shell or skin, literally in the skin of somebody else that doesn't look like them. So if you're a young white woman who's blonde, in this game you're an older black man. And you just kind of spend some time looking at yourself in the mirror, kind of moving around and moves as if you're looking in the mirror. And then afterwards they find out that your, your thoughts are much more positive for that group than beforehand. So it's like the more the more you feel that the people that you're looking at are you, the more you can relate with them, the more positive those experiences are. And it's even you even see that in uh, in people who are family and spouses. So if you look at brain activity as it relates to pain, for example, these kind of mirroring systems are much more active when you see an image of yourself being touched or in pain just a little bit less when you're seeing a, a loved one or a family member, and very little when you see someone who doesn't look like you or who you consider us to be a stranger. I think that says a lot about how we relate with each other.
3: Yeah, we, We've been doing, uh, Lisa and I both, a, a fair amount of work on, on why we are where we are yeah. and our tribal instincts, uh, natural imp- and the imp- obvious historical importance of identifying tribes there. It doesn't mean you can't respect other tribes, But if you discount the biologic underpinnings of the fact that you're going to be close and connected naturally, Mm -hmm. then you won't appreciate how difficult it is to go beyond that because we have to, right? right? In the modern world, you got to get past where your brain is hardwired to go, which is protect yourself first, then your family makes sense, right? Genetic links, they'll be loyal to you back, et cetera. People look like you, people behave like you, people have your values. But the bullet base of society benefits when all those different factions are brought together, which is why the greatest civilizations were able to conquer that. And when they lost that ability, then they began to fall apart. That was a quick summary of something I've figured out over the last couple of months just doing homework on this, Mm -hmm. which is why I'm intrigued by mirror touch synesthesia, because it seems to be on one end of the spectrum, but again, as you point out, most of us have a part of it. How old were you when you realized you weren't exactly like everybody else? Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. I bet you a lot of people who are thinking, you know, I I I thought sort I of felt that way too. Maybe I actually have this. Never paid attention to it. Yeah, never nurtured it.
2: I always had a sense there was something different or odd about me compared to other people, but I always just chalked it up to being it's a sort of very weird kid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember uh, watching cartoons and seeing Bugs Bunny eating a carrot and feeling like I'm eating a carrot, or Roadbunner sticks out his tongue, I feel like my tongue is sticking out, or Wile Coyote gets it by a truck, and I feel like I'm hit by a truck. Or Wile Coyote. remember break. Yeah, it was only until medical school that I learned what synesthesia was alone that I experienced the world so different compared to other people. It was actually, I was doing a medical trip out in India with a group of medical students. And one night we were just talking about the health benefits of meditation. And uh, a friend of mine who had a background in neuroscience chimes into the conversation and says, oh, did you all know there's these people who live like they're having an ongoing acid trip and they have an easier time getting into these deep meditative states. And when he said that, I was most struck by why he would bother mentioning something so ordinary Mm. It was only after later that night I said, "You mentioned this thing about people kind of seeing colors when they hear sounds and and uh, seeing kind of letters and colors and things. Like, why would you mention that everybody has that?" Oh
3: my goodness!
2: <laughs> he just looked at me and said, "No, that's definitely not normal." <laughs> so, did
4: your family did is your whole family like this? So, because mm. you would have mentioned it at one point to your mother or father, right?
2: Yeah, it, it definitely came up in, in, in interesting ways growing up. So for example, uh I just I mean this the the way I related with other people, I initially was very withdrawn and kept myself away from others. Um uh, but also when I would color as a kid, um my my numbers had to be very specific colors, my letters had to be very specific colors, and I would make comments that just didn't make sense to other people, but they just kind of dismissed it. But the observation about um family members, so Interestingly, there, there, there is a genetic basis to it. So people with synesthesia are genetically different and their brains look and work differently compared to other people. And if you have synesthesia, you're much more likely to have a family member or more who has synesthesia. Um, it, and if you, if, if you don't think you have synesthesia, um, you probably know somebody who does and you just haven't asked the right question. Like, that music, what does it look like? Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's just it's, it's fascinating. So in the book, you you do talk about the fact that it wasn't always a positive
3: effect, that you were lonely in a way. And was the isolation something that you imposed on yourself? As you point out, some people with mere touch anesthesia, you know, you can't stand to see someone eat. That's a common one, by the way. Is it? Yeah. Watching, some people don't like... Ah, Yeah. He's probably driving you crazy. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Joel <laughs> just left, left the room. Uh, but that that we, did a, we did a segment on this. But I didn't even realize it because it never bothered me to watch people yeah. chew. But people uh, who, I guess, with some form of mirror touch synesthesia have they, they have this aversion to mastication. Something about that whole process that's, it is dirty, it's ugly. I mean, think about what's going on inside your mouth when you're showing <laughs> something, right? You're thinking of something beautiful that looked great, that's why you ate it, a cookie, right? Uh, and, unless and you chump gr- it into something no one else would ever think
2: of putting in their mouth. Uh, unless you grew up as a fat kid, in which case you love watching people eat, like <laughs> well, myself. Perhaps. <laughs> perhaps.
3: So, so what, what made you lonely was the fact that, that, that your words sort of made you seem. Like you weren't like everybody else. That
2: yeah, I feel like fe- feeling very different from other people. Not really I mean, feeling so connected. while at the same time, being pushed away. Huh. Um, and I just didn't want to to be hurt, and I wanted to be able to to be as close as I could to people because that ma- that made more sense to me to 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 hug people with some an experience that I loved because that made that made so much sense because the physical sensations that I'm seeing in them are actually the sensations that I'm feeling on me. Um, and it was, it took me many years to slowly kind of come out of, come out of that shell and begin to make friends. And then eventually it actually went to the opposite extreme when I, when it it kind of drove me into medicine, where I was just diving far too extreme in the experiences of my patients leading to essentially kind of burning out. Um, and over the last several years, I feel like I've finally gotten to a place where I can navigate those two extremes a little bit better.
3: We have a lot more to talk about, but first, let's take a quick break.
1: Right rug flooring.
3: I am curious uh, uh, about how this manifests itself in, in so many folks. You say you want to sort of embrace it mm-hmm. because it helps you cope with it. Is that the best way for people to, 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 if there's a negative effect of synesthesia, for them to cope with it? Yeah. Or is it better to avert? your
2: eyes, if you see something you don't want to see. I think it depends on the situation. So I can give the example, like like if I'm in the middle of a medical emergency, and decisions need to be very fast, and I need to follow an algorithm. Right. Um, it doesn't help the patient for me to be totally absorbed in their experience. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel you dying. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm with you all the way. <laughs> so in those situations, together. Yeah, exactly. So in these in those situations, I focus on a couple of things. So one, I'll focus on my own physical body. So the sensation of my tongue in my mouth or my toes in my socks. Or I'll, I'll look at something that doesn't look like a person, like a sleeve or a collar. Uh, and that can help to kind of draw some distance. But if I'm in the clinic where... Being more empathetic actually is helpful for a person. Then I can really dive into that experience. Um, you know, I, I, I. When people ask me how do I, how do I pull away from the extreme side of the empathy, right? Um, you know, I, the three things that I say have been really helpful for me is boundaries, resilience, and practice. So when I say boundaries, it's really about creating really firm yet really thoughtful boundaries. So those boundaries are really important to be able to to create distance when you need the distance from the people around you. There's been a lot of work done um, looking at people who are very empathetic, especially like nurses and doctors, that the ones that, that are less likely to have burnout are the ones that are able to have strong boundaries. So what's an example of a boundary? Yeah, so let's say— uh, Let's say uh, here's here's an example. So I uh, when I began my, my neurology training, I, w- I was also seeing patients who had tic and Tourette's, mm-hmm. um, and I had one patient who, in, a, in the setting of a lot of stress, developed self mutilating tics. Oh no! So he takes his right hand that and his, pushes his knuckle up against the side of his mouth so hard that he begins to kind of shred the side of his mouth apart, like 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 shredded beef essentially, and he grinds his teeth at the same time. So as I'm watching him do this, I feel this painful buzzing sensation shooting into my left cheek and into my teeth like there's a stun gun being triggered up against my face each time he's having one of these tics. And in those moments, rather than letting myself kind of just be carried away by his experience, I have to create the boundary of looking away, taking a moment, taking a deep breath, and then focusing more more on myself and saying, it's okay that I'm not 100% as an experience because for me to help him, I need that distance. I mean, I think this kind of at the core of, of empathy for for any of us. You know, if, if you're seeing someone who's suffering, you have two major choices. One is to get really wrapped up in that distress, turn and run away, mm-hmm. or take a deep breath and do something about it. Yeah.
4: So the, when you are mirroring someone, do you feel just the physical sensations that you're seeing or do you feel their emotional state as well
2: yeah it's both and what's really fascinating is you know what emotions are in our brain are actually for the most part physical it's the combination of the physical sensations your awareness of your physical sensations and kind of where you are your context and for me it's the the emotional aspect of it really comes up um when I'm, when I'm seeing patients who who are suffering, I may not necessarily be wanting to share that. Mm-hmm. So I had this one patient who um, he developed a little bit of double vision at home, came into the, into the hospital, and thank goodness he came into the hospital because he almost had a stroke in this really important part of the brain where if he had had that stroke, he would have developed what's called a locked-in syndrome mm-hmm. where he would have only been able to move his eyes up and down, and that's it. So we were able to give him the treatment that he needed, thank goodness, and when I saw him a couple of weeks later in my clinic, I was talking to him, getting like, checking in to see how he was doing. And he was saying that you know, he, he was dying, he he's exercising every day on the computer. All of his labs were perfect. His his uh, his uh, cholesterol levels were really great. His diabetes levels were perfect. And I was congratulating about this. I was telling him he like won this like gold medal of health. Uh, but the sense of joy he was giving off didn't match the physical sensations of joy that I'm used to experiencing. And so I made the decision to press him on this a little bit. And he just broke down crying. It turned out he'd been depressed, anxious, just terrified about the idea of having another stroke. And that's something that blood tests can't tell you, an MRI can't tell you, a right. standard physical exam can't tell you. I think the mirror touch was helpful and just having that moment to connect let us have a more Earnest conversation about what was going on. We were able to address it and then start treatment for him. And after several weeks, he was doing so much better.
3: I'm curious if we can harvest this power that if that might ex- that we may be on a spectrum we we're unaware of and we've purposely sort of hidden it. Yeah, and that's why I want to just tease into how your brain works a little bit. So when you when you look at colors, you're starting to say this earlier, but I want to finish the thought. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. When you see numbers you actually see colors around them, right? Musicians will often see colors around a a tune. Mm -hmm. When you, when you look at Lisa, do you see a color around her?
2: Yeah. So there's a a form of synesthesia uh, that I have. So I, I'm also kind of a a little odd compared to other people who have synesthesia because I, it's just hyper synesthesia and partly it's my, just like my genetics and biology, but I also had a tumor over this part of my brain where all the senses converge. And so it's, It's possible that that had something to do with why my form is so extreme. But when I see people, I also had the experience of numbers and colors tied to the people, too, that tied to kind of the personality traits of my numbers. So I'll give you an example. So the number three for me, just the number three is a purple number. Also, the number three is a very humble number. Uh, it also doesn't like to let uh, others know kind of the talents that it has. It is, it's very, very specific personality traits of this number, which is just kind of bizarre, right? <laughs> um, but when I see people, they may they may also have uh, colors uh, and numbers tied to them. So seeing you, um, for you, I see also a, a number two, which is a very kind of red number, which to me, uh, the number two is a very Fierce, feminine number also has... <laughs> at some. Keep going, it's accurate. <laughs> I can confirm that what you're all saying is accurate. Fierce, and feminine. Yeah, so, and it's, it's, it happens to everyone. It's, it's very kind of immediate. It's just, it's similar to um, how we all have imp- what's called implicit bias, where we all make judgments about people as we see them. It just so ha- happens that my implicit bias is coded in numbers and colors.
3: Yeah, but I bet you a lot of us have... That same bias, we just don't have the transparency into the process you have. Or That's the right. way to
4: articulate it. Yeah. I think a lot of us have an immediate impression of someone, mm-hmm. but we might not put a number to it.
3: As you, as you all said earlier, we walk into a room is the energy a good or a bad energy? Mm-hmm. Is the room I'm attracted towards or repelled from? Yeah. What color am I? Black <laughs> <laughs> sucking
4: energy.
3: A number. <laughs> nothing Negative left. 14. Cheese so- a
2: cheese. Hole. <laughs> for 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 you, I would say the the main number that comes up for me. There's there's actually three numbers. So one is a four. Now there's a little bit of an eight and then a little bit of zero. So the four for me is a is a is a kind of a bluish grayish color. The four is actually one of my favorite numbers. It's a very passive friendly number. Ah.
4: <laughs> that didn't look very passive yeah, no, friendly. Yeah, no.
2: <laughs> yeah, the uh, the the eight is a yellow kind of, uh, number, which is kind of a hardworking kind of a, a number. And then the zero there's it's a kind of a white iridescent number. And there's usually something when when people have zeros, there's something kind of uh, exceptional about the people.
3: So uh, let's look at these numbers, because I'm I'm, I've always had a lot of interest in numbers. Uh-huh. And when I travel the world, I see how numbers play a major role in different societies. In India, numerology is gargantuanly important. And, mm. It's more important than the horoscope, or it's part of the horoscope, actually. A good friend of mine was actually a patient I transplanted, and we've become close friends, is an expert numerologist. He happens also to be a billionaire. Mm. But uh, it's not because he's good at working numbers. He might be that, too. But he's, when he was young, that was his first career. Was looking at numbers the, and how they predict where we are, and some of it might be the, the more linked to how we perceive people using numbers than anything else. Uh, but eight, you mentioned, I might have a little bit of eight. I mean, in China, where we were this year, it's their special number. Mm. So how do you how do you connect numbers and the colors you see to societies that may value them for reasons they don't even appreciate?
2: Yeah, this is some of the the really remarkable kind of this is getting into the remarkable stuff about synesthesia for for all people. So when when we're all born, we all have synesthesia. It typically goes away at around age 2 as our brain begins to trim excess connections in the brain. Mm-hmm. And what scientists have seen is that the connections that people have between sounds and colors and numbers, some of them are kind of odd and eccentric, but some of them are kind of universally shared. So for example, like sharp cheddar why How is it cheddar that it, how is cheddar sharp, yeah, or a loud tie? How is it th- tie loud right it's a
3: good question I, I've never thought of that of course, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: and part of it may be that uh culturally we 've kept this kind of in the cultural DNA, so to speak, sometimes it relates to what we 're describing has colors, so things that are hot, for example, or things that tie of warmth tend to be like orange or yellow or tend to be kind of fiery. Um, but there are some of these associations that are across everybody, regardless of culture. So there may be some genetics that actually are responsible for the weird connections that we have. We're so much more connected than we think. I love this. So
3: if you want to figure out
2: whether you have a type of synesthesia, is there a
3: quick survey quiz? Somebody can sit back and say, oh my goodness, I never knew for the last 25
2: years I've had this pro- the issue. Now I know why. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a few questionnaires that just ask you very straightforward questions about whether you you relate with having the blending of the senses, or when you see somebody else in pain, whether you feel like you're having pain. And what you see is that uh, out of the group of people who who score really high on on these tests, um, when you when when you bring them into a lab, you're much more likely to find people who have this extreme form of mirror touch. But I think in general, it just goes to show that you're on this higher end of the spectrum. So if it's okay with everybody, I'm, I'm not going to go through the whole questionnaire right now because you won't keep
3: track of it. <laughs> As many of you are driving, could be dangerous. So we're going to put it on droz.com. I'll put a quiz. About 10 questions? It's just a few questions, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, take it. If you, if you if you think you got mirror touch, it might be interesting change in your life. So I really enjoyed speaking with you.
2: Oh, it's, it's been a pleasure. You brought
3: it to light, something that I heard of but had very little deep insight into. I can see why it would be helpful in medicine, but I want to echo what you were saying uh, earlier, that we all have it. Uh, we probably want to nurture it a little bit if we can. Sort of fun to do the little experiment. Maybe everyone listening can try that today. Just see if there's something that's just catching you a little off guard, that you're seeing connections between different senses that you normally wouldn't sense. You mentioned color, by the way, but you could also get a smell, right? You yeah, can smell exactly. something when I see somebody. Mm-hmm. Not because they smell bad. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of examples like that. The book's called Mirror Touch. Uh, well-reviewed. And Joe Salinas, uh, if you want to see him, go up to Seeming Clinic in Boston. Or... <laughs> <laughs> or just watch some of his work, because I'm sure you got lots, boy, you'll tall folks. Take care, my friend.
2: Thank you.
1: Right Rug Flooring.